And I always say, if what Jesus has done for you doesn't move you emotionally, then I would challenge you that you have no idea what Jesus has done for you. You have no idea because it's profound, and we're going to discover that today. It's the biggest holiday related to our faith. It's even bigger than Christmas. There's more candy, but that's not why. We celebrate Easter because it's the most important event that ever occurred in history. And Easter is the single most important event that can ever occur in your life when you understand what it's all about. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place on the cross so that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. Today I'm going to try and I'm going to fail to do justice to what Jesus has done for us. But he asked me to try, so we're going to try anyway. I can share it with you, but I can't possibly help you understand how incredible it really is. The Holy Spirit has to do that in every heart. And so I know we've already prayed twice, but I'm going to ask that we just pray quickly one more time because what I want, my prayer, I know your prayer, is that the Holy Spirit would cut deep in every single one of us today and make what we're reading not just words on paper, but a living truth that we understand and grasp on a level that I can't put into words for you. So would you just pray one more time with me? Father, we just thank you again for the chance to be together. And and Holy Spirit, we just invite you and we ask you to illuminate the living word of God in our lives today, that it wouldn't just be words on paper, but it would be alive, that we would be moved emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually, God, today, that we would have a revelation of Jesus, whether we know him not at all or whether we've walked with him our whole lives. Thank you that you love us. We're excited to hear from you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to study through one of Jesus' most incredible miracles, raising a man named Lazarus from the dead. It's really hard to top. Really hard to top raising the dead. And we're going to study all the way through the miracle to understand it. And then we're going to come back and we're going to point some things out in the text that are going to help us see ourselves in the study today. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Let's just dive right in, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now Jesus is very close with his family. There's three siblings. There's Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, and they live in this town called Bethany. And most Bible scholars believe that when Jesus was in their town, this is where he would stay. He would stay with this family. They were more than just people who liked each other. They were friends. They were close. This wasn't a place where Jesus went to do work. This is a place he went just to be with people that he liked and he loved. He enjoyed their company. He found it refreshing. They were very, very dear to him. Verse 2, in case you're wondering, is just referring to an event that takes place in the next chapter of John's gospel, John 12. But let's keep going. Verse 3, it says, Therefore the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So Lazarus is sick. And I love that he is referred to simply as he whom you love. The one that you love is sick. The Greek word that's used for sick there really means deathly sick. The idea is he's dying from this illness. Continuing on verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says, don't worry, this thing's not going to end in death. I'm doing something here 
going to bring God a lot of glory. So just hang with me. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, and this is strange, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That's an interesting response. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is dying. He loves Lazarus, and his response is, so he stayed where he was for two more days. Very, very strange response. Why? We're going to find out that Lazarus is going to die. In fact, Lazarus is going to die before Jesus would have even reached him if he had left right at that moment. But Jesus had said, this isn't going to end in death. Jesus had waited two days. The Jewish custom in dealing with death was to have a one-month period of mourning. And for the first three days, you would actually hire professional mourners. They would wail and lament and dress in black and keep the mourning going pretty much day and night professionally. I find it as odd as you do, I promise. First three days, professional mourners. I mean, I, I don't even know how that came to be. Did somebody be like, man, I've been mourning for like two hours. I want to mourn more, but I'm just out of energy. I'll give you like 10 bucks if you'll keep this going. for. I, I, don't, I don't really understand it. But so for three days, they have professional mourners. On the fourth day, the professional mourners leave, and it becomes just friends and family who come to meet with the family and share in their grief. So there's a, a real dialing up of the intimacy of the grieving starting on the fourth day when the professionals are out of the way. And we're going to find that Jesus is going to arrive on guess which day? The fourth day. After the professional mourning is done, he's going to arrive and walk into the most intimate grieving that the family and friends could be going through. And I don't think that's an accident. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? So just remember, in John's gospel, when it says the Jews, it's not talking about all the Jews. It's talking about the Jewish leadership. And at this point, they're actively trying to kill Jesus. So the disciples point out, small thing to consider, Jesus. They're trying to kill you where you're suggesting that we go. Just my two cents. You might want to consider that. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In a somewhat complicated way, Jesus is just simply saying, I'm the light of the world. Don't worry about it. If I say we can go and be fine, we can go and be fine. Don't sweat it. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus is clearly using the word sleep as a euphemism for death. That's another way of saying death. But his disciples, as usual, are a step slow. Verse 12, then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. You sort of picture Jesus going, guys, guys, guys. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Here's what's interesting. Jesus never gets a second message. Did you notice that? Nobody comes to Jesus and says, update, Lazarus is dead. Save your sandals. No real need to rush on this trip. Nobody comes to him and says that. He knows that Lazarus has died because he has been talking with the Father. He's been in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and he has had it revealed to him that Lazarus has died. Nobody has told him outside of the Trinity. 
Verse 15, Jesus continues, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. So in other words, you're going to see something that's going to build your belief here. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus says, this is a good thing. You're going to witness something amazing here. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas's nickname is Doubting Thomas from the time period after Jesus' crucifixion when Thomas hears Jesus has been raised from the dead and his response is, listen, if I don't put my fingers in the holes in his hand, feel the hole in his side, then I won't believe. And so we get the nickname Doubting Thomas. But that's not really who he was. What we see here is them pointing out, they're going to kill you if you go to Judea, Jesus. And Thomas's response is, is pretty awesome. Thomas goes, well, let's go and die with him, you know. He's all in, but apparently he's also kind of a pessimist, right? Well, let's go and die with him. He's like the Eeyore of the disciples, I think, you know. Okay. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Just the friends and family around now. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. The only reason that's there is to give us the threat assessment that Jesus is only two miles away from Jerusalem, the epicenter of the plot to assassinate him. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She's right and she's wrong at the same time. Jesus can ask whatever he wants of God and God will give it to him. But she's missing the connecting quality that Jesus is God. He's like, yeah, I could ask God for a favor. Being that I'm God, I could do that for you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She thinks Jesus is talking spiritually and not literally, which I think is a logical assumption when someone tells you at a funeral, oh yeah, they're not going to be dead in like five minutes. You'd be like, hallelujah, I know what you mean. They'll live forever with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, like um, grab another chair. He's going to be out the coffin in like five minutes. So she doesn't understand what's going on. And then Jesus lays out the gospel, his mission, his purpose, the way to be saved, the way to eternal life. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What the original language says is he who believes in me, though he was dead, he shall live and he'll continue to live. When you become a believer in Jesus, the fear of death ends. And this is why. There's no fear in death because we're not really going to die. But notice the order here. Belief comes first. Belief comes before life. Belief comes before eternal life. It's the step to receiving it. Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And that's what a clear response to the gospel looks like. There's no ambiguity, no confusion. She says, I believe you are Christ, 
You're the Messiah. You're my Savior. You're the Son of God who came into the world. No ambiguity. Verse 28, And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. Which isn't what Jesus did, but she just wanted to get her sister there. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Martha had come out and met him somewhere else in the town on his way there. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, the exact same thing her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then my kids' favorite memory verse, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. If you have a King James Bible, you have one of my kids favorite verses ever in the bible there because in the king james bible what it simply says is he stinketh (laughs) just a great word i didn't even know stinketh was a word he stinketh i think i'm going to start saying that when my two-year-old has a dirty diaper he stinketh so verse 40 jesus said to her did i not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of god So despite the dialogue up to this point, it's clear nobody really had any idea what was going to happen next. Even Mary and Martha hadn't clicked what Jesus is about to do. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Lazarus' condition can only be described one way at this moment. He is dead. He's dead. Four days in the grave, okay? He's not dead with potential. He's just dead. No potential. Is there anything that Lazarus can do to help himself right now? There's nothing he can do. He's dead. Lazarus is not stronger than death. And you know, God never does for us what we can do for ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, I still have to brush my teeth, even though I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This whole scene would have been very dramatic and disturbing. We sort of read it like we know what's coming next. We forget they didn't know. So they're in the middle of mourning. Jesus shows up and literally, from most people's perspective, begins acting crazy. And so now he's gathered everyone around at the tomb and everyone's there, tons of witnesses, and he says, roll away the stone. This would be like meeting a family to grieve at a graveside four days after the person has been buried and somebody says, dig them up. This is deeply disturbing what's going on. And as the stone is rolled away, the the stench of death comes out and arrests the senses of every person. It's a very disturbing thing going on and it speaks to how close Jesus was with this family that they do it. They follow his instructions. He tells the disciples to move the stone. You know the disciples had to be thinking, this 
could be so awkward if this doesn't work out. You know, they're all probably planning their escape. They're just going to slowly back away into the crowd if this thing doesn't work out. Very, very awkward, very, very disturbing. There's a decaying body being exposed. Then it says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, the people around, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying out loud. He's speaking audibly for the benefit of every person there and for our benefit. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Why didn't Jesus just say, come forth, come forth? There are many biblical scholars who believe that had Jesus not specified Lazarus come forth, every dead person in the area would have come forth. (laughs) So he had to specify because there is that much power in the words of Jesus Christ. He has that much authority, that much power over death. He calls the dead out by name. By name. The voice that is speaking here is the same voice that spoke the universe into being. It's the same voice that John the Apostle hears in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4.1, that says, John, come up here. And takes John up to be in the presence of Jesus. How loud was Jesus when he called Lazarus? He's loud enough to wake the dead. This miracle at its core is about death. It's about the effects of death. It's about the pain of death. And it's about Jesus' power over death. And so now we're going to switch gears. And we need to put ourselves into the story. And the first thing that strikes me in this miracle is really the interactions that Mary and Martha have with Jesus. You know, first Martha comes out to meet him, and then later she brings her sister Mary, and they both say the same thing. And and I think we need to understand the drama of what's happening here. They're devastated, and, and the closest picture they have is they come up to Jesus, and they're just in this broken, irrational state of grief, I would imagine they're, they're probably punching him in the chest like a child, and they're, they're screaming, if you had been here, if you had been here, none of this would have happened. Where were you when my brother was dying? Where were you? And Jesus is just holding them as the tears pour down their face. Have you ever had the sense when you've lost someone to death that it was just wrong, just wrong? I don't know how to explain the sense I I, I get often when I go to a funeral and someone has died of sickness. and I'm overwhelmed by the sense that this is just wrong. And we all know in our core at those moments that many of the things that we hear Christians say are just not true. Hey, when one door closes, another one opens. God always has a plan. It's the will of God that this happened. None of that changes the fact that we're all overwhelmed by the sense that this, this just shouldn't be. This doesn't feel right. This, this doesn't feel natural. Despite the fact that we spend our whole lives being told that death is a normal part of life, it never feels right. It never feels the way it should be. Why is that? 
Why is there something profoundly wrong about death? Why is it that in life, just as we start to get a little wisdom, a a little experience, just as we, we learn enough to start becoming useful, our bodies begin breaking down and betray us. And we start on the road towards our inevitable death. Why, why, why is that? Why does that feel so wrong? I think it's because death was never meant to be a part of life. I don't think it was ever meant to be a part of life. And I say that because the Bible makes it clear that death entered the world because of sin. There was no death before sin It's mind-blowing to think Adam and Eve were not created to die. They were created to live forever. It's an incredible, incredible thought. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, they did what we've all done. The Bible says every single one of us has gone astray. The idea is we've all rejected God in our own way. We've all rejected God's way and gone our own instead. The world before sin was, was amazing. Imagine a place with no death, no, no decay. No decay at all. And when I say no decay, I mean you run and you don't get tired. You don't get weary. You don't get exhausted. There's just no decay. You work all day and your back doesn't hurt when you lay down. There's no decay. Nothing is breaking down. And when sin entered the world, it corrupted everything. Not just our spirits, but the whole world. We became corrupted in our thinking. We became corrupted on a genetic level. We became corrupted in our emotions, in our relationships. In every single way, sin corrupted everything. But worst of all, it severed our relationship with God, our Creator. You see, God is holy. That means He is without flaw. He is without sin. He is lacking nothing. And so to have a relationship with us, God made us holy. He made humans. He made Adam and Eve holy. He made them without sin so that we could relate as family with God. But when we rejected him, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey him and go their way instead of his, we severed and destroyed that relationship. And when the standard is perfection, you can never get it back. If you're thinking that seems a little harsh, Perfection, I mean, you need to understand this. What you're really saying when you say that's a little harsh is you're saying it's not that big of a deal to reject your creator, to reject God. You're saying, I don't think it's that big of a deal to offend and reject God. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's the most serious offense any of us could ever commit, and we've all committed it. Every single one of us. When Martha and Mary come up to Jesus, they're protesting the fact that they have felt the effects of sin in the world. And I know we've all been there. I know we've all said it shouldn't be like this. God, why is this happening? I know we all have things in our past. Some of us are in them right now where we say, God, where are you? How could you let this happen? If you had been here, none of this would happen. If you were good, I wouldn't even have to think about this right now. What we're really saying is we're saying, I don't like that I have to deal with the fact that my sin has consequences. And I know we're saying, well, well, I didn't do anything to that person. But as a human being, 
You have contributed as much sin to this world as anybody. So have I. And what that all adds up to is the world that we have right now. And then we want to blame God like he did this. Like he owes us. And if you want to know what it looks like when God has his way, you have to go back to Eden. That's what it looks like when God has things his way. Or you have to go ahead in the future to the glorious day that is coming when Jesus will say, behold, I'm making all things new. And he will push the reset button on earth and it will all go back to the way it was and we will start over. But this time with a heart that is capable of following God, that won't betray him. But where we are now, we are in the space between those two points in time. We're in the space between. And when we experience pain and injustice and suffering and hurt and anguish, what we really should be doing is grieving deeply. It should move us to tears over the brokenness of the world, over the brokenness of humanity, over our own brokenness. That the reason we need a Savior is because we need saving. Because this world is not okay. It's broken. And we are the ones who have broken it. We did this. We all did this. This isn't the world that Jesus made. This is the world we created after we rejected His. You know, the first step to solving any problem is figuring out what the problem is. And our problem as people is not an unjust God. Our problem is us. Our problem is our own sin. And some of us need to stop being angry at God today. And we need to start being broken over our own sin. And it's into this broken world that Jesus came. He came into this broken world. He had every right just to say, good riddance. You made that bed, now sleep in it. Sleep in it till you all blow yourselves up one day. He didn't do that. He came and he walked in our shoes. He became one of us. And he chose to experience the broken world. He chose to experience the corrupted creation that we messed up. You know, I find it staggering that Jesus knows he's going to heal Lazarus, but he still weeps. He still weeps. Why? I believe what's really happening here is that Jesus is just deeply moved and he's deeply grieved when he comes face to face with what our sin has done to us. He made every single one of us. He created you. He created me. And in this moment, he is face to face with what our sin has done to us. He's face to face with death. He's face to face with the power of sin. And he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. Even though he could have said, I told you not to eat from the tree. Told you. He steps into our suffering and he lives in the moment, fully present, takes it in and feels it right along with us. And that's what he's doing with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Have you ever considered how heavy it must have been for Jesus 
day after day in human form to be surrounded by the effect of the people he made rejecting him. I think it's a deep grief. I think that Jesus, even though he had the joy of the Spirit, I think he battled probably a very, very deep depression on a level that, that we couldn't even understand. It's much more akin to grief. And it's the grief that drove him to the cross because everywhere he looks, he sees broken relationships. Everywhere he looks, he sees broken people. And he has to carry with him the whole time he's on the earth the knowledge of what it could have been like. He knows what Eden was like. He put it there. Jesus has to live with this as he's on the earth. But he doesn't say, I told you so. He's full of compassion. More than that, he's there in it with them. Who does that? What kind of a God does that? He's the son of man, so he's able to sympathize with our struggles. But he's also the son of God, so he's actually able to help us. When it says that Jesus groaned, the original Greek word is kind of strange. It's the word used to describe a horse that is snorting angrily. It means distress to an extreme degree. It means violent displeasure. So you need to get this picture in your head. Jesus is not just sad and grieving. He's angry. He's righteously angry. He, he is in this moment simultaneously crying and probably trembling with anger over the state of the world and what sin and death is doing to the people that he loves. It changes the way you see this whole story. He's there and Mary and Martha are, are holding on to him, weeping. And he's, just, he's just angry. And he's grieving, grieving deeply. He's in great distress over the power of death over his friend Lazarus. And if you're not a believer this morning, here's what you need to know. Jesus is in great distress over your situation. He's in great distress. You are under the power of sin and death. You are in the grave whether you realize it or not. And like Lazarus, there is nothing you can do to help yourself. You cannot bring yourself from death to life because you're guilty of rejecting God. You're guilty, just like we all were. Here's the good news. He loves you. He loves you. Just as Lazarus was he whom you love to Jesus. You are he whom he loves. You are she whom he loves. The only thing you have going for you is that he loves you. You are dead without him. You have one thing going for you. He loves you. He loves you, and you won't believe what Jesus will do because he loves you. He's in violent displeasure over your condition. He's not okay with where you are. How violent? Well, so violent is his displeasure over where you are that he shed his own blood for you. So violent that he was beaten for you. So violent that he died for you. And so violent that he called for your judgment almost 2,000 years before you were born. And let me tell you what happened. You were found guilty. You were found guilty. And you were punished. Except Jesus stepped in your place and said, put it 
on me. Put it on me. All of his sins, all of her sins, past, present, and future, put it on me. And he died for you. So when you stand before the Father now, when you stand before the Lord, you can be blameless. Because whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, whatever you will do, has already been punished. It's already been taken care of. Justice has already been served, but it was served on Jesus instead of you. And so now you can have that relationship back with God that was lost because of sin. And you can step into the incredible future eternal life that God has for you. If you'll believe Jesus when he says, I've done it for you. Do you believe this? And if the story had ended with Jesus on the cross, it would mean that sin still ended in death. But after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did, it was a declaration to the universe that death is not a power greater than the life that is in Jesus. The life that is in Jesus is stronger even in the grave. And Jesus has said, this is the life that I'm offering you if you want it. Life that can't even be taken by death. When the Apostle John received his revelation, the last book of the Bible, he was on an island called Patmos. And when he saw Jesus in this vision, he wrote this. He said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He was so overwhelmed when he saw Jesus, he just fell down before him. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I have the keys of death. Me. I control it. And so each of us at some point in our lives will find ourselves in Lazarus' place. We're all born sinners. We're, we're in this sinful world. We're all born in the grave. We're all born under a death sentence. And every single one of us will live a life that proves we deserve it. Because it's in our spiritual genetics. Jesus has died for all of us, for all sin. So here's the good news. For all of us, Jesus stands outside the grave and says, come out, come out. He invites us all to leave death and enter eternal life through him, a life that's going to last forever. And you know, it is the grace of God that we're even able to hear his voice calling us. And yet here you are. For some of you, this is your day. This is your moment. God got you here so that you could hear his voice saying, come out, come out. Move from death into life. And every single one of us will decide to leave the grave or to stay in it. We will all make that choice. And if you want to leave death, this is what it means. It means acknowledging the one who's calling you out of death. It means saying, there is someone calling me out of death. His name is Jesus. He's the only one who can do it. And he is my savior. And then this is what your life becomes. Your life becomes about living as though you actually believe that. Your life becomes about living for the one who saved you. Everything you are, everything you do, everything you have belongs to him. He becomes everything because that's the only response a savior deserves. 
It doesn't mean that you become a great person overnight or that all your, your issues disappear. I got issues. You got issues. I love Jesus. All my issues didn't go away. What it does mean is that you belong to Jesus. And he goes to work on the inside of you, sweeping the remnants of death out of every area of your life, out of your relationships, out of your hobbies, out of your past, out of bitterness, out of your work, out of your mind. He goes to work and does that inside of you. I want to end with this. You know, I remember the first time when I was a teenager that I read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is written hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth and it prophesies with incredible detail what happens to Jesus. And the first time I read this, it, it just wrecked me as a teenager. It just wrecked me. I still barely get through it when I read it because we make the cross so neat and tidy. And this gives us insight into the physical and emotional and spiritual price that Jesus paid for us. And so I just want to read it for you in its totality. If you're there in your Bibles, you can follow along. If, if, if you can't find her, you, you don't have a Bible, maybe just close your eyes. And as we read this, let's just fill our heart with, with thanks toward the Lord for what he's done for us. It says this, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sin of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I'll give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Would you close your eyes and, and bow your heads? Jesus says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The greatest opportunity I can give you today is the opportunity to respond to the voice of Jesus saying, come out of death and come into life. And so I'm asking you if for the first time in your life you're at the place where you're saying, I, I need him. I need him. I need him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need him. And I'm ready to follow him. As messed up as I am with all my issues, I'm ready to follow him. Even if I'm not sure entirely what that means. If that's you, while no one is looking around, I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out. Would you just raise your hand so that I know you've responded? If this is you and this is your moment, this is your time. For the rest of us, I just want to ask the question, does the cross, does the gospel, does Jesus still move you? We fight a battle all the time between our own desire to be in control and the Holy Spirit's desire that we would be controlled by the Lord. Man, if you look at your own life this morning and you say, man, I've wrestled back control. God's slipping down the list. And you just want to return. Then you do that this morning. You, you repent. You make whatever changes you need to make. You tell God you're sorry. You ask Him to forgive you. You confess that you've done that. And then confess that you want to follow him wholeheartedly. Ask him to renew your heart, to give you a heart after himself. He will. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for giving us your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for standing in our place. And when it came to our sins, saying, put it on me. Put it on me. We, we can't even begin to contemplate how to repay you. But I pray that you would find in each of us lives and hearts that belong to you completely, God. It's our desire that every area, every room of our hearts, every corner would belong to you. You would have all of us, God. What can we say but thank you? Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And thank you that you are not in the grave, God, but you are on your throne above all kingdoms, above all powers. Above all dominion, you're the name above all names. You're the king above all kings, God. And you're the one we call our God. We praise you and we just declare that you are worthy. You are mighty. You are holy. You are amazing. You are incredible. And there's no one like you. And you hold the keys of Hades and death. You are dead, but you are alive, God. Thank you. Just keep your eyes closed. Keep your head bowed. And just let the Lord speak to you for a minute. Allow him just to speak to your heart. 
Allow him just to reveal some things to you.